We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. Reading from Genesis chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I am running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well there was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there, between Kadesh and Beirut. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the son Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Um, let, me, let me pray for us as we get started. Father, what a, what a challenging passage. Uh, we, we need you to speak to us now through it with clarity. Help us to understand what it is that you have for us. Uh, help us to believe that whether we are here today and this is something that we do every week or whether we are finding ourselves in a church service for the very first time and can't even really believe that we're here Would you help us to believe that none of us are here today by accident? That we're here because you've brought us here and you have something to say to us and your words to us are always words of life. They are always words of hope. They are always words meant to bring us joy and fullness. And so would you give us ears to hear all that you have for us this morning? 
Meet us in our belief. Meet us in our unbelief. Meet us in our joy. Meet us in our sorrow. Meet us in our despair or in our depression or wherever we find ourselves this morning. Meet us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, we are in a series in the life of Abraham. And uh, we're about four weeks in now, and we come to a pretty startling chapter in the Bible. Uh, For many of us who are Christians, we we come to a passage like this, and we're not quite sure what to do. I mean, think about this. Who, Who do we have in this story? We've got Abraham, the father of faith, as the New Testament calls him, and his wife, Sarah. And they are committing unspeakable injustice and evil in this passage. Or maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're not convinced of the claims of Christianity. You're skeptical of religion and you, you look at this and you say, look at this. I mean, look at all of the, look at the misogyny. Look at the oppression. Look at the slavery. How can I believe this stuff? You know, religion was the source of many problems back then and it is the source of many societal problems today. This is what Christopher Hitchens thought. Christopher Hitchens was a a very well-known atheist who died several years ago. He wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Spoils Everything. And he writes this, he says, religion has been an enormous multiplier of suspicion and hatred. It is violent, irrational, intolerant, allied to racism, tribalism, and bigotry. It is invested in ignorance and it is hostile to free inquiry. It's sectarian, It's contemptuous of women, and it is coercive toward children. Organized religion ought to have a great deal on its conscience. You know, one of the reasons why so many people are deconstructing their faith today and walking away from the church is because they feel the same way. Like Hagar in this passage, they've experienced deep hurt and pain at the hands of the church. And maybe that's your story. And maybe it has you thinking about walking away from Christianity as well. What do we do with this passage? What do we do? Well, we're going to get to all of this stuff in just a moment. But before we do, I want to just point out to you the most striking part of this passage. And it's actually not what Abraham and Sarah do. It's it's actually what, what Hagar does. Hagar is an Egyptian slave girl. She is an outcast. She is a societal nobody. And in verse 13, it says this, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. Now, in the Hebrew, it's just two words. It's you are Elroy, which kind of sounds like a southern name, actually. But you are Elroy. El is God. And Roy is sees. You are the God who sees. Now here's something really interesting about this. Not only is this the first time in the Bible where anyone confers a name upon God. Not even Abraham has done that yet. Not only it is the first time in the Bible that someone confers a name upon God, it is the only time. And so there must be some, this is what's really grabbed me this week. This name. The first name given to God. There must be something so significant about this name that God wants us to learn about him. The God who sees me. 
Would you just, for a moment this morning, what if you believed that God saw you? How would that change your life? It changes in radical ways. That's what we're going to look at this morning. I want us to see three things about this name. We're going to look at the comfort of the name. Then we're going to look at the terror of the name. And then we're going to look at the wonder of the name. All right? The comfort, the terror, the wonder. So first, the comfort. Now, I have to tell you that, that this story hit me in a very powerful way this week because Hagar is a single parent. She's a single mom. And there was a season in my life where I was a single parent. And it was the hardest season I've ever been in. And some of you are in that season right now. You're facing those challenges right now. And I want you to know something. If you're a single parent in this church, we are so glad that you're in this church. And we want to be a church that cares for you and your children well. If you know people, if you know single parents in this church, I want you to hear me say this. They, they really need two things from you. They, they need a break. <laughs> single parenting is kind of like double parenting because one person carries all the load. And so they need a break. And so if you know a single parent in this room, ask them, hey, when could I spend some time with your kid? When could I give you a break? Here's the second thing they need. They don't just need a break. They need a family. Single parenting can be so lonely. They need to be invited into your home. And and, and it doesn't need to feel fancy. They just need to feel like they are not alone. This is what we've been singing about all morning. We are not alone. I read an article this week. It was by a woman named Anna Mead Harris. And the article started like this. She said, about a month after my husband died, I took a walk with another single mom who'd lost her husband two years earlier. No sooner had we hit the path than she remarked, you know, Anna, how vulnerable we are. And boy, did I ever know. Statistically speaking, single mothers and their children are among the most vulnerable populations in our nation. We are more likely to be food insecure, to live below the poverty line, and to struggle to find affordable childcare. This vulnerability is nothing new, which is why caring for the defenseless is a hallmark of true Christian faith. My vulnerability as a single mom encompasses many fears, economic insecurity, being taken advantage of, dating someone who turns out to be a jerk, and leaving my children parentless by dying. Without a partner in my life, the world feels much more threatening. And that's why I love to read about the relationship that God initiates with a young woman named Hagar. Single parenting is hard for anyone, but it is especially hard for someone like Hagar. This is a woman who is living in a patriarchal world. She's a woman, not a man. She's Egyptian, not Hebrew. She's a slave, not free. She is poor, not rich. She is vulnerable in every way, and right now she is on the run. She has been terribly mistreated. She's been raped. She's been abused. She is pregnant and homeless, and she is alone in the desert, and she has nowhere to turn. You cannot get any more vulnerable than this. Can you imagine how insignificant she felt? Can you imagine how unseen by the world that she felt? 
Some of you know this feeling, actually. This is kind of what you live in. Uh, Several years ago, my wife had gotten to know uh, a homeless man uh, who stood on the exact same corner just about every day uh, asking for food and for money. And over time, she learned his name. His name was Anthony. And one day she pulled up and she rolled her window down at the stoplight. And she said, Anthony, it's nice to see you today. And he looked at her and he said, it's nice to be seen. We long to be seen. What does it mean to be seen by God? I think it means two things. The first thing it means is that when God looks at you, He sees you as having infinite worth and dignity. Infinite worth and dignity. Look at what the angel says to Hagar in verse 8. He he asks her, he says, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, angels were God's messengers, okay? They, They speak for God in the Bible. So this is like God talking to her. And this question to Hagar actually sounds a lot like God's question to Adam and Eve in the garden. When he said to them, where are you? Now, God was not in the dark about where Adam and Eve were, and he is not in the dark about where Hagar is. He knows exactly where she is, so why does he ask the question? He asks the question because he sees her like he sees them, made in his image, created with inherent dignity and glory and immeasurable value. Can you imagine what it must have been like for this woman when she realized that even though no one else saw her, the God of heaven and earth saw her, when she realized that she had no significance in anyone else's eyes, but she had significance in God's eyes. And you need to know something this morning. God sees you the same way that he sees Hagar. And there is such comfort in that. I mean, what comfort for you if you've ever felt like you were born in an inferior neighborhood or with an inferior color of skin. What a comfort for you if you've ever felt like you were born in the wrong body or with the wrong sexual orientation. What what a comfort for you if you don't feel like you have the resume, the status, or the beauty that the world says you need to have to be somebody. What incredible comfort for you, if you have made terrible missteps in life and your life is riddled with shame, to know that God looks at you like this. Let me tell you, there is not anything in the world that can give you the kind of self-image that Christianity can. It's amazing. That to be seen by God means that he sees you with infinite worth and dignity. Here's the second thing that it means. It means that he sees your sorrows and his heart is filled with compassion for you. When the angel of the Lord comes to her in verse 11, look at the text. He says, you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. That's what the name Ishmael means. God hears. Now, I just want you to see for a moment the compassion of God for this woman. He is not deaf to her cries. He hears them. He sees all of her sorrows and his heart goes out to her. And one of the things we've been saying in this series is that one of the things we want to get deep down 
into your bones is that the God of the New Testament is not any different from the God of the Old Testament. Sometimes we think the God of the Old Testament is kind of this guy who woke up on the wrong side of the bed. He's kind of cranky and just looking for people to strike down that day. But then we come to the New Testament and God is nice and he's loving and he's merciful. No, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same. And we see the compassion of God here. He looks at this woman. He has compassion on her. And you know what happens when you come to the New Testament? Jesus is constantly doing this with people. I've been so struck this week by the number of times in the Gospels that it literally says Jesus saw them and he had compassion on them. In Luke chapter 7, verse 13, he comes across a funeral procession. There's this widow who is burying her only son, her only child, And and Luke writes this, he says, when Jesus saw her, his heart went out to her. In Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus looks out over the crowds, it says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In, In Luke 10... In the parable of the Good Samaritan, it says that when the Samaritan, who's the the Jesus figure in this, when the Samaritan saw the man in need, he took pity on him. In Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, it says that when the prodigal son was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Now, there is so much we could talk about in terms of, hey, We are a church. We are called to see other people like this. We are called to see people in our city like this. And we are called to have compassion on them. But I just want to, here's where I want to go with this this morning. Do you know that this is how God sees you? Do you know that this is how he relates to you? One of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia is this scene where Diggory is this young boy and his mother is dying of cancer. And he meets Aslan, who's the Christ figure. And the conversation goes like this. Lewis writes that Diggory says to Aslan, please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? And Lewis writes, up till then the young boy had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. And now in his despair he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life, for the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Where do you need to see God crying with you and for you today? Where do you need to see his heart going out to you? Where do you need the assurance that there's not a single tear that God has not seen and there is not a single cry in your life that God has not heard? All of that in this name. What comfort Which brings us to the second point, which is the terror. Now, what do I mean by that? If God sees everything about Hagar, you know what that means? It means that he sees everything about Abraham and Sarah too. 
And just look at the depths of evil that we've got in this story. If you've been following along, you know, the story of Abraham and Sarah is that God came to them and he promised to bless them with a child and to make them into a great nation. But they had been waiting for about 10 years at this point. And the biological clock is ticking for Sarah. And God does not seem to be coming through. So Sarah says, Abraham, here's a great idea. Why don't you sleep with my servant, Hagar? And what does Abraham do? Okay. Zero fight. Zero fight. And then, even more startling in verse 3, is that Sarah, it says that Sarah took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband. That is the language of property, friends. You know, we've just gotten finished talking about how God saw Hagar as a person to be loved, but they saw her as an object to be owned and to be used. And then after Hagar gets pregnant, what happens? Sarah gets jealous and angry. She says in verse 5, Abraham, you're the one responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. And Abraham says to Sarah, well, she's your servant. Do with her whatever you think best. And then in verse 6, it says that Sarah mistreated Hagar. Now, that is a loaded word. That word mistreated, it's the same word used to describe how the Egyptians treated the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt. So here's what we have. We have abusive and oppressive relationships. We've got injustice. We've got infidelity. We've got people who are more concerned with their own self-advancement than another person's well-being. We've got manipulation. We've got jealousy. We've got anger. We've got people abdicating responsibility and blaming one another. And God sees all of it. Now, what do we do with that? I want to say a couple things here. First, for those of you who think, I cannot believe that slavery and polygamy and this kind of objectification of women is in the Bible. You need to know that the Bible is not condoning these things, and it never condones them. It is simply telling you what happened. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons you can actually trust that the Bible is true. It never whitewashes its own heroes. It is very honest about their flaws and their missteps. Here's the second thing. For those of you who've experienced injustice and pain in the church, I want you to know something. This passage does not excuse any of that, but it does explain it. The church is filled with a bunch of people who are like Abraham and Sarah. It's what one Christian writer, Francis Spufford, calls the International League of the Guilty. It is a flawed, broken community because it is filled with flawed, broken people. Which is why, Christians, we need to constantly be repenting of the way that we have misrepresented Jesus in the way that we've treated people. That rather than getting defensive when people start bringing this stuff up, we actually need to listen. We need to listen to the ways that they have been hurt or the ways that they're looking at the injustice that's been done by Christians in the world, and for why they're saying, I don't think I could ever be a part of this. 
And by the way, if that's you, that's where you are, I want you to know something. You can talk to the pastors of this church about those things. We are not afraid of those conversations. We do not shun those conversations. We welcome those conversations. Here's the third thing, and this is really the main one. It would be so easy. It would be so easy. And maybe you're already doing it. Probably most of us are doing it. To look, to read this story and go, look at those terrible people. Look how, look how evil and wicked and self-centered Abraham and Sarah are. And I just want to tell you, if you're doing that, you are totally missing the point. Elizabeth Holmes, who, she's been back in the news again. It's been a little while. Some of you may not remember this, but a handful of years ago, Elizabeth Holmes became the youngest billionaire in the world. She, she had a tech, a medical startup called Theranos, started right here in Silicon Valley. She created a device that would radically change blood testing. It was going to provide breakthrough medical care for people all over the world, people in third world countries. The problem was that the whole thing was a scam. It didn't work. And Elizabeth Holmes knew it. The whole thing was covered up. And what happened was this device began to be distributed. Doctors were using it, CVS or Walgreens, somebody was using it. And you know what happened? People started to be diagnosed for things that they didn't have. You know what else happened? There were diagnoses that were missed in people, and some of them lost their lives. They just finished the trial. She's found guilty. She's going to jail. She should go to jail. It's a story of deception. It is a story of greed. It is a story of manipulation. But here's the thing. When the story broke, everyone was talking about Elizabeth Holmes as though she were uniquely evil, except for literally one I found one person. It was a behavioral scientist who was in the documentary that HBO produced about her. His name was uh, Dan Ariely. And, And in the documentary, he says this. He said, If you look at Elizabeth Holmes at the end, you could think, how could she do this? But that would miss the point. If you look at her from the beginning, it becomes a cautionary tale about all of us. If we end up with this story and say it's one bad apple in one industry, well, that's a bad lesson because this is about the human condition. The human condition. There is not a single person in this room who is not capable of doing what Elizabeth Holmes did. Put in her place of power or gain or fame. I mean, if you don't think you're capable of that, friends, I, you don't know yourself. And you see, if you look, if you look at her, if you look at, if you look at Abraham and Sarah, If you look at anyone and say, look at those terrible people, you are missing the whole point of this passage. Do you not see the same things in your life that you see in Abraham and Sarah's life? Sure, maybe it's not to the same degree, but it is all there, friends. Self-centeredness, manipulation, using people to get ahead, prejudice, Bitterness, jealousy, anger. You know, if God sees all of these things, if he sees everything, 
in Abraham and Sarah, then that means that he sees everything in us as well. Now, let me ask you a question. What does that do to you? You know what it did to everyone in the Bible? It terrified them. It undid them. Moses, when he meets God on Mount Sinai, there's, there's, there's fire and there's smoke and there's darkness and there's a sense of God's holiness. When the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, meets God in the temple, he, he says, woe to me, for I am, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. Then you get to the New Testament and you find the apostle Peter in a boat with Jesus and he encounters the power of Jesus as they have this miraculous catch. And what does he say? He says, Get away from me, for I am a sinful man. One of the ways that you know that you're beginning to deal with the God of the Bible is when the idea that he sees you is both a source of comfort and dread to you. And, you know, and maybe you're thinking, you know, this just, this all sounds a little archaic, you know, a little primitive. But would you think about it this way? Imagine if, imagine if I told you that uh, for the last week, there's been this little device attached to you that has been recording everything you've said, everything you've done, and everything you've thought. And this morning, we've got that recording, and we're going to play that for everyone right here on this screen. <laughs> what would you do? You would not come back next week, is what you would do. You would be terrified. And let me tell you something. I would be terrified. If you watched that video of me, you'd say, who, who said this guy should be the pastor? If, if having a bunch of other broken, messy people watch the details of your life this last week, how much more does the thought of a holy God actually having seen that shake you. And some of you are thinking, you know, golly, point one, that was on point. We should have just stopped there. Modern people, we, we love the idea of God's compassion and mercy. We love the idea that he sees us with inherent dignity and value. We love the idea that he sees our sorrows and his heart breaks, but we do not, we don't know what to do with the idea of God's holiness and his judgment. But I want you to know something. The gospel is both. And we need both. If you just stop to think about it for just a second, you know, if there is no judgment, if there is no justice, what hope is there for Hagar? And what hope is there for the Hagars of the world? See, as Western Americans, we, who, who most of us kind of live relatively comfortable lives, we struggle with the idea of God's judgment and justice. You know who doesn't? People who've been oppressed. People who've endured genocide. See, if, if there is, <clears throat> if there's no judgment, what hope is there for Hagar? But if, if there is no love and grace and mercy, then what hope is there for Abraham and Sarah? And what hope is there for me and you? We need both. How can you have both? Well, that brings us to point three, which is the wonder of the name. Now, at the end of this passage, 
Hagar is filled with a sense of wonder and amazement. Look at verse 13. She says, it says that she, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Okay, now what's, what's, what's blowing her mind right now is not just that God sees her, but that she sees God. Her heart is exploding. Why, why is she so amazed in this moment? Robert Alter, who I've mentioned several times in this series, he's a Hebrew scholar. He teaches at UC Berkeley. A little shout out to our college students here today. He's, he's, he's uh, written a, an entire commentary on Genesis. And Robert Alter says this about this verse. He says, Hagar's words and explanation of the name are rather cryptic in Hebrew. But the translation reflects a scholarly consensus that what is at issue is a general Israelite terror that no one can survive having seen God. Hagar is expressing grateful relief that she has survived her experience. No one could see God in the Old Testament and live. You couldn't get close to God. That was the whole point of the temple and all of the sacrifices. That's why there was always a sense of terror because God was holy and no one else was. And you see, make no mistake, I mean, Hagar is the victim of incredible injustice in this passage, but Hagar knows her own heart as well. You know, in verse 4, it says that she, when she became pregnant, she despised Sarah. The same seeds of hatred that were in Abraham and Sarah were in her as well. And she knows this. And so she is amazed that here she is in God's holy presence, seen to the very bottom. All of her brokenness, all of her mess, all of her flaws, and she is alive. And not only is she alive, but she is embraced. She is loved. God is caring for her. He's reminding her that even though nobody else thinks she matters, he thinks that she matters. Even though nobody else thinks that she has dignity or worth, he thinks that she has dignity and worth. And her heart is on fire. You know why? Because she has a sense of both God's judgment and God's grace. Now I want you to hear this. If you only have a God of judgment, your relationship with God will be one of fear and terror. And some of you have spent many years in churches like that. See, but if you only have a God of love and grace, you know what? Your relationship with God will never have a sense of wonder. It'll never melt you. It'll never transform you. You've got to have both. How can we have both? We can have both because of this table. We can have both because in Genesis 16, when Hagar cries out to God in her sorrow, she gets God's voice and his presence. But on the cross, when Jesus cried out to God in his sorrow, he got God's silence and his absence. When God saw Hagar... He turned his face toward her. But when he saw Jesus on the cross, he turned his face away. Why? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin 
to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what that means. It means that on the cross, when the father looked at the son, when he saw Jesus, you know what he saw? He saw the sin of Abraham and Sarah, and he saw the sin of you and me. He saw all of the self-centeredness. He saw all the manipulation. He saw all of the bitterness, all of the hatred, all of the pride, all of the injustice, so that now when he looks at us, He sees us as perfectly and utterly righteous, loved in his sight. The gospel says that on the cross, Jesus got the terror of God's judgment so that we can actually now have the wonder of God's love. And that's how you have both. Friends, what we find as we come to this table this morning is a God who says, I see you. I see all of you. I see your sorrow. And I see your sin. I see the best parts about you. And I see the worst parts about you. And I love you. It's a table of embrace. Let me just finish this morning with one of my favorite quotes from J.I. Packer. He says, there is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love for me is utterly realistic that it's based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that God sees all the twisted things about me that others do not see and that he sees more corruption in me than, than that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God and the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend, and he desires to be my friend, and he has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, what comfort, what comfort in this name and what comfort we find at this table. A God who sees us and knows us better than we know ourselves. And yet, rather than coming to judge us, you came to die for us. So that now, in and through your Son, we we come to this table with utter assurance, with absolute confidence, not because we look at our lives and say, look how good I am, but we look at your son and say, look how great he is. What a great love. What a great hope. What a great name. That you are the God who sees us. We give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen.